Hi, I'm D.W. from Houston. Hi, I'm Kristen from San Francisco. Hi, I'm Graham from Vancouver, Canada. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Yes. I'm Jesse Thorne. Coming up, I'll talk to a man who's a master of the accordion. Also, not a bad rapper. It's weird, Al Yankovic. I don't know where the skill comes from. I think it comes from just a lot of unwarranted confidence in myself. It's Bullseye. Coming up, I talk to Weird Al about his multi-decade career in song parody. From another one rides the bus to eat it to white and nerdy. Find out how it all started. I don't think I ever had any aspirations to be cool. I thought that was sort of out of the question. You know, uh, I just wanted to amuse my friends. Plus, Jeff Nunberg explores the meaning of a word that we can't say on the radio. Suffice it to say, it starts with an A and ends with O. Dictionaries don't really give it much attention. Oh, it's a contemptible person. Well, there are a lot of people who are contemptible. Stalin was contemptible, but you probably wouldn't use the A word of him. His book on the subject is now out in paperback. Plus, our rap contributor, Andrew Nas, tells us about some of his all-time favorite tracks. All that and more coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. I'm tempted to say that my first guest needs no introduction, except that right now it's occurring to me that this is radio and so you can't see him. He's Weird Al Yankovic, probably the greatest song parodist of all time. He sold more than 12 million records. Right now you can grab his new concert DVD and Blu-ray, Weird Al Live, the Alpocalypse Tour. Plus, he's got a new kids book coming out this month called My New Teacher and Me. I spoke with Weird Al in 2011. Weird Al, welcome to the show. I appreciate that. Thank you. I hope that 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 ramp up was suitable. I, I, I you impressed me. Okay, I'm excited to be here. Good, good. I I know. I mean, it's it's got to be fun to be you. I got to tell you. Um, I, I want to talk to you. Why, why don't we start by talking a little bit about your childhood? Um, when you were like 15, 16 years old, um, did you want to make music? that was funny or did you want to make music that rocked and would make you a cool rock and roll guy i don't think i ever had any aspirations to be cool i thought that was sort of out of the question you know uh i just wanted to amuse my friends yeah i I think maybe i went through a stage which lasted about 20 minutes where i was like trying to write you know a serious rock song or a serious pop song and I wrote some just execrable <laughs> lyrics, and I looked at him and said, no, this isn't going to work. My brain is too warped to uh, to take this seriously. I have to kind of follow my muse, which was kind of just to do demented music. When did this now, you use the phrase demented music, which is the descriptor for the music that was played on the Dr. Demento radio show, um, which was a popular syndicated FM radio show that was sort of a clearinghouse for every type of novelty song and piece of funny music. Um, when did you first hear that show? I think when I was maybe about 12 years old, uh, a friend of mine turned me on to it and said, there's this show that's on KMET, Los Angeles, uh, FM station in L.A. Sunday nights, four hours, he plays nothing but like weird, funny, crazy music. And I thought, well, that's right up my alley. And uh, I started listening, and uh, I was immediately hooked. Um, 
it went on a little bit past my bedtime. So after lights were out, I would have the uh, alarm clock radio under the covers, you know, and I'd be listening to the the the, the, the funny five or the top ten. And uh, it was uh, I listened to it religiously. I mean, it really was an important part of my life. And um, after a while, my friends were saying, "Well, why don't you you know why don't you record your own stuff and send it into the show?" And I thought, "Well." I could do that. Uh, and so I re- recorded myself singing along with my accordion uh, just on a little tiny cassette tape recorder uh, in my bedroom. I think I, uh, it was <laughs> the cassette for like three for a dollar. I mean, there was just even, even the stock was cheap. Um, but I sent them to the Dr. DeMello show. And to my utter amazement, he played those songs on the radio. Um, I, I just could not fathom this <laughs> this was happening it was like just the stuff that i had just recorded in my bedroom was now being heard by uh the whole listenership of the dr Demano show i want to play a little bit of one of the first songs that you sent to dr demento this is a song called belvedere cruising you have that wow um the internet my friend oh yes everything's on the internet it's amazing yeah how old were you when you recorded this song and sent it in i was either 15 or 16 i think Wow. Well, let's hear a little bit of my guest Weird Al Yankovic in his very first song, Belvedere Cruisin'. song or think about that song do you feel like you, you recognize a voice or or a person that you later became as an artist everything's gone downhill since Belvedere Cruiser I, <laughs> I was so raw that was so punk you know it was so feral and so intense I I don't think I've ever matched that intensity <laughs> but but sincerely I mean that that is really I think the theme of that song you know, it's it's a song about... Um, it's a love song about my parents' car, which, <laughs> you know, I, I think every, every artist has one of those songs in their catalog. It's, it's also a song that has, I think, a classic Weird Al juxtaposition, which is essentially fronting like you're cool in the way that popular music does, and that being sort of reality checked by something very banal. That's a very nice way to put that. Yes. <laughs> Let's go with that. <laughs> speaking speaking of songs that have that theme, I, I want to play a little bit of your first big Dr. Demento hit, uh, which is a song called Another One Rides the Bus. Okay. Riding in the bus down the boulevard and the pace was pretty bad. Yeah. But a seesaw had to stand with a perverse in the back. It was smelling like a locker room. There was junk all over the floor. We're already packed in like sardines before we're stopping to pick up more. Tell me a little bit about how you recorded this record. Uh, that was uh, another one. Rise the bus was written uh, very, very quickly. I think um, this it was actually over a weekend. 
where I went on a uh, on a uh, camping trip actually with Dr. Demento and and a couple other friends. We'd actually become friends uh, during my high school years because I would send him recordings and he'd play them and we developed a bit of a relationship. Um, and uh, he invited me and I think uh, our friends Beefalo Bill and Damascus and other other people who had been friends of the Dr. Demento show to go on a little trip. And um, over that weekend, I I think I dashed off the lyrics in like 20 minutes because the Queen song was a big hit on the radio. Uh, and I thought, oh, maybe he'll let me play this, this song on his show that Sunday night. And I told him about it. And he said, yeah, well, we'll have you debut during the, uh, the, the top ten. Uh, so I had my accordion with me uh, during the show. I uh, got ready to play. And I said, anybody wants to make any funny noises while I'm playing, you'll feel free. Musical mic, you can do your hand flatulence sounds. And everybody else, <laughs> just, like, do whatever. I think we maybe practiced it once out in the hallway. And there was this guy that said, hey, you know, I, I'm a drummer. I, I could bang on your accordion case. And I said, yeah, that, that's right. Uh, so uh, Dr. Mello introduced me, Alfred Yankovic, and his magic accordion, or however it was. And he turned on the mics, and, uh, and we did another one right the bus. A couple miles ago, but I couldn't get to the door. There isn't any room for me to breathe. Now we're going to pick up more, yeah. Another one right the bus. And I didn't think anything of, of it other than, yeah, that went pretty well. And then I went back off to college because I was, I think, 19 years, 19 years old at the time, and I was just on, on break from, from school. Went back to college, and about a week later, my roommate... Uh, was telling me, oh, when I get back from class, and he'd say, you know, there were some messages for you on the phone. There's some radio station in New Zealand that wants a copy of another one rides the bus, and I was getting all these crazy messages from all around the world, people trying to figure out how to get a copy of the song because it was on the Doctor Mel show, which was syndicated nationally, but you know, the song really took on a life of its own. It, it was viral. In the days before things went viral, I mean, people were just, you know, desperate to get a copy of this thing. Um, so that was that was the beginning of it. It, it came out uh, eventually, gosh, s- several months after the fact, after the uh, bloom was uh, far off the rose, but um, didn't quite get out in time to, to make any kind of real splash. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Weird Al Yankovic about his long career in song parody. What was the point that the, these dalliances in recording and performing became an earnest attempt at building a career that could pay your bills? Probably not until after I graduated from college. Um, well, I proceeded to try to, you know, take a shot at getting a bona fide record deal. And it was a period of a couple of years where, you know, uh, I knocked on a lot of doors and uh, uh, sent a lot of tapes around. Uh, and the, the general response was, oh, this is really funny. You're very clever. And, it's, yeah, you know, this you know, it's, it's possibly even genius. But, you know, we're not interested because this is novelty music. And if you're lucky, maybe you'll have a, another hit single or something. But we're looking for people, you know, to have long careers. And, you know, this, you know, this is just not the genre that we want to be involved with. What were you listening to in the 1980s uh, when you were first building your career? I've always been kind of drawn to, well, of course, like there's the Dr. Demento artist, which, which inspired me in the first place. But uh, I was, uh, in, in terms of contemporary artists, I was really inspired by the whole uh, new wave scene, which was, I guess it's more like late 70s. But, but uh, the, the B-52s and Devo and Oingo Boingo, Talking Heads, things like that. Uh, and that, that kind of carried over into the 80s a bit as well. But yeah, anything that was a little quirky and left to center, I, I took a lot of inspiration from that. This was a time when the music landscape was really changing a lot. 
um, just as it had in the 1970s with the sort of advent of FM album-oriented rock radio. It was changing the 1980s into a, a world that was uh, driven by uh, new radio formats and also MTV that had video. Um, what was the first like real studio-produced attempt that you made that really worked? The the first album uh, that we did was done on spec. Uh, it was uh, produced by Rick Derringer, and I should probably explain how that came about. Um, I, I was I get permission when I do the parodies, and and one of the parodies that I was uh, recording was uh, a parody of Joan Jett's hit uh, "I Love Rock and Roll," which uh, correct me if I'm wrong was "I Love Rocky Road." That is correct, sir. Now that was a cover version for her. That was originally done by a group called the Arrows. And uh, one of the gentlemen in the Arrows who also co-wrote the song was Jay Cooker, who happened to be Rick Derringer's manager. I hear those ice cream bells and I start to drool. Keep a couple quarts in my locker at school. Yeah, but chocolate's getting old. Vanilla just leaves me cold. There's just one flavor good enough for me. Yeah, me. Give me no crummy taste spoon. I know what I need. Baby, I love Rocky Road. So won't you go and buy half a gallon, baby? I love Rocky Road. So have another triple scope with me. Oh, was that was that your first genuine real life radio smash? Well, uh, there was a uh, demo of that song that came out before the album. It's sort of like we were trying to get... We, we did the, al- the We recorded the first album on spec very, very quickly, very cheaply, and mm, I would say sort of poorly. <laughs> but, but, you know, it was a product of, a product of its time. Um, but we had the, uh, the demo of the song, which we kind of leaked to Los Angeles radio, and it actually got a fair amount of airplay on a couple of the Top 40 stations. And we, we used that exposure to create the buzz that would, you know, we hoped would get us a record deal. And again, you know, we were still having a tough time from uh, all the record companies. They all thought that, you know, this was novelty. This is not something we want to dirty our hands with. And finally, uh, a company called Scotty Brothers decided they would take a shot at it. When I'm all alone, I just grab myself a call. And if I get It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne, and my guest is Weird Al Yankovic. He's got a new kids' book coming out this month called My New Teacher and Me. You can also check out his recent concert DVD and Blu-ray. It's called Weird Al Live, The Alpocalypse Tour. We spoke in 2011, shortly before the Alpocalypse album was released. Your albums are uh, often roughly half uh, original compositions and, and half parody songs. Um, usually with a polka medley thrown in. Um, And I want to play one of your earlier uh, successful original compositions, which is called Biggest Ball of Twine in Minnesota. Okay. Well, I had two weeks of vacation time coming after working all year down at Big Roy's Eating and Plumbing. So one night when my family and I were gathered around the dinner table, I said, kids... You could go anywhere in this great big world now. Where'd you like to go to? They said, Dad, we want to see the biggest bottle of twine in Minnesota. They picked the biggest bottle of twine in Minnesota. This is another, this is another one of your tunes, this one, an original that is... Um, 
that is about that sense of kind of suburban banality. I wonder how you felt about that in a time when, in the in the early and mid 1980s, when there was sort of this buzz of satire of that, like attacks upon that uh, that was left over from punk rock in part. Um, and also uh, an ironic celebration of camp, which was at the time just kind of making it into the mainstream. Right. I mean, there was certainly a lot of uh, you can read a lot into my my, my body of work. I, I think the irony plays a lot into it. And certainly the, there's an, there's a uh, uh, there's a theme uh, running through my songs of uh, uh, celebrating banality, um, which, which I just kind of wanted. To, you know, I'm sort of uh, alternative music as it is. Um, but, you know, everybody else was writing songs about love and and loftier themes. And, uh, you know, I thought that to to stand out, I could be writing songs about lunch meat and, <laughs> or, or, or twine balls or what, whatever the case may be. And just just celebrating uh, the minutiae of everyday life. I was thinking of I was thinking of Eat It, which was uh, I'm 29. So that was a big that was a big thing in my childhood. Eat it. Both beat it and eat it. I worshipped Michael Jackson and I loved Eat It. And I was thinking about how that is just simply about the simplest thing it could possibly be about. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm thankful that there was no YouTube in 1984 because otherwise there would have already been 10 million Eat It parodies before I ever got around to it. It really takes this, this most basic human function and just explodes it into absurd opera the absurd opera of pop music that pop music is often right i did a lot of songs about food uh, especially in the in the 80s and i'm not really sure why food just seemed like a really easy thing to write <laughs> songs about I, it might be a leftover from my days as a a, a starving musician <laughs> i don't know uh but it, it's come in handy because now um because i have written so many songs about food i, I can totally write off any kind of food that I eat, like my grocery bill, like that's a tax write-off because you know I, I need it for inspiration <laughs> for my songs. Really. In the early 1990s, there was a huge push against that pop excess that you had parodied so successfully in the 1980s. The kind of, uh, you know, frivolous Debbie Gibson songs that uh, made a great target for you were suddenly the target of the songs that were on the radio as alternative rock became a huge phenomenon. Um, how did you feel about uh, alternative rock when it sort of exploded the pop music world in, you know, 1991 or 1992? I was a big fan of alternative music. I mean, I, I, uh, I was thrilled when Nirvana became a big hit. Um, when they first came on the scene, I, my first thought was I would love to, uh, to uh, do a parody of these guys, but, you know, they're never going to be mainstream enough for me, me to, to make fun of. Uh, and then when their album went to number one, I was thrilled. And, 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 and thankfully, uh, Kurt and the guys uh, had a great sense of humor about the whole thing. But I was a, a big fan. I mean, the, the 90s uh, were a great time in music. Uh, I mean, I just I like 
real instruments. I like guitars. I like uh, the whole DIY aesthetic, and I like uh, you know, I like actual bands. Um, and that, yeah, that, the 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 whole indie and alternative scene, I think, was uh, was a lot of fun. And I, I was it was great to see that you know, pop culture kind of take a dip <laughs> in, in, into that uh, area for a while. It's a very different aesthetic than some of those new wave bands that you talked about admiring, like Oingo Boingo or Devo, who were often, uh, who were often at their core about satirizing things, about having fun and being funny, sometimes in a campy way, sometimes in a satirical way, you know, you know various ways. Um, Alternative rock was not what you would generally describe as humorous. <laughs> well, maybe not generally, but I mean, they certainly had a you know humorous alternative bands. I mean, there, there's a lot of uh, I don't want to give you a laundry list of names, but I mean, my favorite bands of the of the time were. Well, just add one example, uh, the presence of the United States of America. I mean, they're part of the Seattle scene, part of the alternative scene, but, you know, there's certainly a lot of humor in their songs. And, again, a lot of their uh, material was celebrating banality, much like uh, like my material was. So I, I definitely uh, found some kindred spirits in that scene. Let's hear a little bit of Alternative Polka. One of my guests, Weird Al Yankovic's legendary polka medleys of popular music, this of the popular music of the early 1990s. After a break, I'll talk to Weird Al about rap. He's not that bad at it. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Production of Bullseye is supported in part by Amazon Publishing with American Spirit, the debut novel from Dan Kennedy about a 40-something man and his comedic vision quest along the edges of modern American living. Available now. Bullseye's on Twitter. Follow us online at twitter.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne, and my guest is Weird Al Yankovic. He's got a new kids book coming out this month called My New Teacher and Me. You can also check out his recent concert DVD and Blu-ray. It's called Weird Al Live, the Alpocalypse Tour. We spoke in 2011, shortly before the Alpocalypse album was released. As I walk through the valley where I harvest my grain, I take a look at my wife and realize she's very plain. But that's just perfect for an Amish like me. You know I shun fancy things like electricity. At 4.30 in the morning, I'm milking cows. In the 1990s, you started to do um, parody songs of uh, hip-hop records. And uh, to that point, um, most of the parodies of hip-hop that were out there were, from the perspective of, of a person that actually likes rap music, very sort of disrespectful and sort of ham-fisted and 
reduced this genre of music to a kind of insulting childlike sing-song baloney which <laughs> which spoke to the parodists sort of misunderstanding of it as a thing in the world are you talking about rap and rodney or rap and reagan <laughs> yeah exactly i mean there were but there were dozens and dozens yeah, of were. those records um and i didn't think any of them were much of anything most of them were based on the joke of isn't this funny there's a white guy trying to rap yeah exactly so when you first approached hip-hop um in songs like Amish Paradise, which was the early 1990s, uh, uh, and a huge hit, another huge hit that I, I remember from my own childhood. Um, what was your what was your perspective on what had been done and what could be done? I try to just basically ignore most of those <laughs> examples that you that you mentioned. Uh, the, the primary joke it, it was not that you know. Here's some like goofy white guy trying to do a kind of a, a cool musical genre. I basically respected the music and treated it like I would any other uh, pop song and and uh, tried to emulate the style as closely as I could. And I tried to make the jokes uh, be jokes that were contained in the actual lyrics as opposed to like, you know, isn't this crazy what I'm doing? You know, one thing that I was always impressed by is that uh, you're really not a bad rapper. Well, thanks. <laughs> it, and rapping is kind of hard. Um, I know that I could not successfully rap. Um, tell me a little bit about the work that's involved in in achieving the level of competence that is needed in order to make a successful parody. Um, you know, I, that's a hard one to answer because I, I don't know, uh, th thank you first for throw the compliments, but I, I don't know where the skill comes from. I think it comes from just a lot of unwarranted confidence in myself <laughs> and just, just, uh, just the, uh, uh, desire to just try anything and, and, uh, keep doing it until I, <laughs> I get competent at it. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I never certainly considered myself a, a rapper, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I am a musician. So in terms of rap, I can figure out like, okay, there's, uh, you know, these syllables need to be eighth notes and this one has to be a quarter note. And I figure it out musically and, and then I just give it my best shot. Let's play a little bit of uh, White and Nerdy, one of your more recent uh, hip hop parody hits. MIT. Got skills, I'm a champion of D&D. MC Escher, that's my favorite MC. Keep your 40 out, just have an Earl Grey tea. My rims never spin. To the contrary, you'll find that they're quite stationary. All of my action figures are cherry. Stephen Hawking's in my library. My MySpace page is all totally pimped out. Got people begging for my top eight spaces. Yo, I know pie to a thousand places. Ain't got no grills, but I still wear braces. I order all of my sandwiches with mayonnaise. I'm a whiz and minesweeper, I can play for days. Once you see my sweet moves, you're gonna stay amazed. My fingers moving so fast, I'll set the place ablaze. There's no killer rap, I haven't run. At Pascal, well, I'm number one. Do vector count. Just for fun. I ain't got a gap, but I got a soldering gun. What? Happy Days is my favorite theme song. I sure kick your butt in a game of ping pong. I'll ace any trivia quiz you bring on. I'm fluent in JavaScript as well as Klingon. The part I sing. See me roll on my segue. I know in my heart they think I'm white and nerdy. white and nerdy from my guest, Weird Al Yankovic. Um, do you like to listen to parody? Is is parody a form that like intrigues you as a consumer of media? 
Uh, I try not to listen to a lot of other parody artists. I mean, they're, they're a lot on YouTube, uh, and uh, I, I'm aware that they exist. Uh, but I, I try not. I try not to expose myself to that because I don't want to be unduly influenced. Uh, I try to be aware, just because you know I, I wouldn't want to tread ground that's been tread before, uh, if at all possible. That it's, that's becoming more and more difficult every year, given the nature of portals like YouTube. Um, but yeah, I, I still enjoy comedy music. I still enjoy uh, uh, satire. But um, I, I try not to expose myself to a lot of other actual parody songs. I, I want to play a little bit of a song that you released on the internet. It's called Skipper Dan. And it's a really, it, it's a really uh, uncharacteristically sweet, sad. It's bittersweet, yeah. Version of your typical sense of humor. Here's Weird Al Yankovic in, in Skipper Dan. I was sure that Tarantino Tell me a little bit about what inspired you to write that song about broken dreams. <laughs> I, I think that I was actually on a jungle cruise ride with my family at Disneyland, and uh, the skipper made just some kind of offhanded comment uh, about his failed acting career, and, uh, and a light bulb immediately went off, and I thought, well, that's a whole song right there. I mean, I could, could kind of visualize this whole <laughs> sad character's life full of broken dreams. And, you know, again, the Skipper Dan is not one of my really laugh out loud kind of funny song but I thought it was a really interesting uh, uh, character study and uh, something that I, that I enjoyed uh, taking on. Were there things that you sort of left by the wayside your own dreams that you abandoned in order to pursue this amazing career as a parodist? Not at all. I'm living the dream. This is <laughs> I, I feel, you know, I I, uh, I I can't imagine anything else I'd rather be doing frankly. I mean, uh, I, you know, I, I've uh, comedy and, and music have always been my passions, and uh, uh, I still can't kind of can't believe that I've been able to uh, make a living at it all these years. Are you surprised that now, as you essentially enter middle age, you are not only still in the midst of a career, but essentially as successful, as high in the music industry now as you have ever been? That's a great feeling because most artists that have been lucky enough to have a career that's lasted a few decades, uh, when they do their live shows and they say, here's something from the new album, that's usually the bathroom break. That's like, okay, uh, we'll be back in 20 minutes. Um, and I'm, I'm very fortunate that uh, you know every album that I put out is as vital and as popular as anything in my back catalog. Um, my last album was ostensibly the, my most popular album of my career. It's, it's, uh, it's the first one to chart in the Billboard Top 10. Uh, White and Nerdy uh, surpassed Eat It as being my most popular single. It sold over a million legal downloads. And I don't know how many illegal ones, but I'm quite a few, I bet. Uh, but, I mean, it, it's a, a pretty heady thing to realize that this far into my career, uh, I'm actually sort of peaking. Weird Al Yankovic. 
He's got a new kids book coming out this month. It's called My New Teacher and Me. He's also on a summer tour with his band through August. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week on our show, we're joined by one of our favorite critics to recommend stuff that's worth your time. And uh, this week, we get a couple of all-time favorites from our hip-hop critic, Andrew Nas. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? Hey, Jesse. So your first pick is by two of my favorite rappers, DJ Quick with a guest verse from Ludacris. The song's called Pacific Coast Remix, and it's off DJ Quick's 2005 album, Trauma. Well, my baby mama is because she see having kids as a tool for getting chips. That's with it without the chips. She told my lawyer she's a nurse, but she can't spell school. Quite frankly, she's me up with all this food. Idiot. Welcome to the city where you might see things like real threats, fake breasts, negativity hangs over the city like a puppet string pulling you up. You think they love you to the director yells cut. Now they're packing you with ice and zipping you up. So I think, uh, like a lot of DJ Quick songs, it has what you might call a barbecue beat. But DJ Quick, later in his career, in the past uh, five and ten years, has been a lot more comfortable getting into personal and, and relatively dark subjects. I think that's one of the interesting things about this song. I think, on the whole, he was kind of trying to say a lot about L.A. He, you know, everybody always thinks of the the glamour and, you know, the sunniness and all that. But, you know, Quick came from a very dark side of L.A. culture, and I, I think maybe he glorified that a little bit on his early releases, but, I, you know, with this one, he just kind of looked around and was like, man, this is a mess. Like, as nice as everything looks out here, you know, it's just a mess. Let's talk about uh, one of the early classics of... Um, avant-garde hip-hop. Uh, this song is called Beat Bop. It's from 1983. It's by Z and K-Rob. This is the mellow they call the rail bell The rocks so with the rhythm that a shock is felt When the shake up kick the witch up in the morning Gotta wear with the rhythm like a number one groaning MC quick just to make your peanut butter Shock with the rhythm I'm a number one undercover Bring it up just shake it up rodeo Bring it up just shake it up rodeo I'm the melody down with the funky sound Like it makes your break with my diamond studded crown Just to make it your jail like a little bit of dive so one thing that I think people forget about the history of hip-hop is that in the early 1980s especially, there was a real uptown, downtown connection in the hip-hop world with graffiti artists showing at galleries and, you know, Debbie Harry rapping and all of that stuff. And um, this record is, is, I think, sort of a reflection of that confluence of worlds, as well as, in Ramelzy, just a, a totally distinctive, one-of-a-kind hip-hop figure. Yeah, definitely. Um, Ramelzy, I think, was kind of representative of this sort of 80s hip-hop renaissance man that, uh, I mean, Ram LZ was a rapper, you know, he was a visual artist, he was 
a he was an actor sometimes. He, I mean, he's just a fascinating, fascinating figure, and he is also one of the great hip hop artists where you weren't sure if he was completely brilliant or completely insane. Which I mean, to me, that's that's kind of the mark of a great hip hop artist. Like you don't, you, you know, absolute sanity is not does not often result in great hip hop. <laughs> I, maybe maybe I'm speaking to my personal preference where I, I just like people who can toe that line between, you know, where, where you don't really know how, how far off the deep end they are. Andrew Nas uh, is the uh, uh, blogger behind Cocaine Blunts and the great Tumblr, Tumblin' Herb. He's also a columnist at Pitchfork and writes for numerous other music magazines. His recommendations this week, Ramsey and K-Rob's Beat Bop from 1983 and DJ Quick featuring Ludacris, Pacific Coast remix uh, from DJ Quick's album, Trauma. Thanks, Andrew. After a break, I'll talk to Jeff Nunberg about a word we can't say on the radio. It starts with A, and it means real son of a gun. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, everybody. My name is Dave Shamka. And I'm Graham Clark. And we are the hosts of a show called Stop Podcasting Yourself right here on the MaximumFun.org network. We're the first ever Canadian podcast to win a Canadian Comedy Award for Best Podcast. I think we went with that too early. I think we seem braggy. <laughs> it's a weekly comedy show, a very easygoing chat between Dave, myself, a uh, guest, and we'll talk about things that we've overheard during the week, and also Hulk Hogan. Stop podcasting yourself. Head over to MaximumFun.org to download an episode today. Hey, gang. You can subscribe to the Bullseye Podcast at MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Jeff Nunberg is best known to public radio listeners as Fresh Air's resident linguist. He also teaches at Berkeley and is emeritus chair of the American Heritage Dictionary's usage panel. His recent book is called Ascent of the A-Word. I'm going to say the full title now, which we will have to bleep. Ascent of the A-Word. The first 60 years. The book is available now in paperback. We spoke last year. Uh, Jeff, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. So this book is about the A word. If you don't know what the A word is, um, it rhymes with bass bowl, which is also a lunch special at KFC. And you write that 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 word, the A word, is about more than just what it is defined as in dictionary. So maybe you could tell us what it's defined as in a dictionary and then why that meaning isn't its actual meaning. Well, it, it's 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 one of those words I think of as as being so beneath our consideration. We use it, 
we we don't really give it much thought. Uh, if you ask people what it means, they're they're going to give you a list of names, not not a dictionary entry. And even as I as I, I noted in the book, dictionaries don't really give it much attention. They, oh, it's a contemptible person, the Oxford English Dictionary. Well, there are a lot of people who are contemptible. Stalin was contemptible, but you probably wouldn't use the A word of him. Um, Osama bin Laden was certainly contemptible. You wouldn't use the A word of him. In fact, I, when you were describing the variety of people that were contemptible that you wouldn't d- describe as an A word, I was thinking of alternative comedy to to humanize and personalize something so g- grandly evil is actually like a common joke. It, like to say something like calling uh, calling Stalin an a-hole is is so incongruous as to be funny on stage. And it's precisely incongruous, if you'll forgive me, delving into the comedy. But uh, it's precisely incongruous because it's a word we use for members of our own tribe, for people we're familiar with. We we have uh, familiarity and contempt are connected, proverbially in English, and. And to use the A word of somebody is to suggest not that just that that person's contemptible, but that he's, and I'll, we can talk about why it's he, he's the jerk down the block who gets on your case when you don't take your garbage out in the morning or something. He, he's, um, he's a very specific type. Uh, you, can, you can earn the A word label uh, for cheating on your wife, for example. Probably not for cheating on your income tax. You can earn it for um, uh, cutting off somebody in a left turn lane, but maybe not for texting while you drive. Uh, if... Uh, you can earn it for uh, stealing ideas from your colleagues, maybe not from plagiarizing from a published book. If, if George W. Bush earned the label, which some people think he did, uh, it wasn't for anything he said about uh, weapons of mass destruction. It was for the way he smirked at the press. So it has a much, much more specific meaning than the dictionaries or your firsthand intuitions would, would, would let you think. And it, it, it has a specific meaning. And it's a word that appears in the language at a certain point. It's a word with a meaning that we've never really had. It, it covers ground that other words covered, but they're united in a new way by this word. And, and, and the point I wanted to make in the book is that that's a signal of very basic changes in our social attitudes. The word is born uh, in World War II in the mouths of GIs uh, who use it for officious, overbearing officers uh, above all. The first military leader to be labeled with a word by both his men and his superiors is George Patton, not surprisingly, if you know the real Patton, not just the movie Patton. So the classic a-hole that you describe in this book is a guy who uh, has first has has a lot of airline points and cuts the line at the airline ticket counter when somebody's flight gets uh, delayed and asks for special treatment. And everyone in the line says... Oh, what an A word that guy is! Right, they don't say how uncivil. Yeah, uh, it's it's the word that we instinctively use as a reproach for incivility. It's also an uncivil word, and I think the interesting thing about this word is that it both instances this incivility that everybody's worried about, and it also instances the concern about incivility that everybody expresses, and, and it's an indication of how much those two are wrapped up with each other, and how much we are the, ourselves the problem. There's a sort of blithe self-regard that's involved in the the particular rude, arrogant incivilities that an that an a word exemplifies. Uh, uh, blithe self-regard is very good. I think of it as obtuseness. The the example I give actually of the the perfect example is a, a real story. That a friend of mine told me he's a Texan. He's in New York on nine eleven. He's freaked out as a lot of people are. He's got to get home to his family. He gets money from an ATM. He goes over to the Hertz office on West 43rd Street. There's a huge crowd of people there with the same thought. He has the clerks are 
beleaguered. Uh, this little guy walks in, pushes to the front of the room, pulls out his wallet and says, excuse me, where's the gold card line? <laughs> Everybody in that room was thinking the same three-word sentence uh, that, ended with, that ended with the A word. Um, and the interesting thing about this is the extraordinary obtuseness of imagining that your, the credential you have in your wallet, a little gold card, trumps the extraordinary events of that day. It's an, an obtuseness. Uh, it's, it's imagining that your qualification entitles you to things that it doesn't entitle you to. And moreover, it's not really malignant. There's nothing evil or mean about this guy. He's not hurting anybody. Uh, he's just being a jerk in this case, and, and in particular, this kind of obtuse person who merits the A-word. The A-word is also fundamentally vulgar because it's about butts. And I, I, wonder if, uh, I wonder if you could tell me what the significance of that fact is, because heel and bounder and cat and scoundrel and all of those other words, none of them have anything to do with what in, in broadcasting standards are called sec- sexual and excretory functions, right? Right, right The right. things besides blasphemy that you can't mm-hmm. do on the, on the public airwaves, um, cad, bounder, all those things are not about that. There's no talk about people's uh, special places. So to, to say the A-word is to violate the kind of inhibition that you learn very early. Uh, it's, it, the inhibition about using these words shows up by the time you're five and you're taking a salacious pleasure in saying shampoo. <laughs> so, now, that, that pleasure and the idea that it's a dirty word and you get to say it here uh, and, 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 and the way in which the, 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 t- the stigma is attached to the very syllable so that it, it's retained even if you embed that syllable in, in another word. All of those principles you've learned by the time you're four or five. And the idea that, well, if we could overcome our bourgeois hang-ups with these words, wouldn't be, that, it's like trying to overcome the other stuff you learned when you're four or five. It's, it can't be done. And for that reason, when I use that word of somebody, uh, I might be doing several. If I use it to somebody's face, I'm saying, you are so contemptible that I feel no obligation to... to respect the inhibitions and conventions that normally apply in this situation, or my, my emotions are so strong that they're overcoming those inhibitions. And I'm not simply saying that. I'm demonstrating it by breaking a rule, by breaking a, 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 a very basic inhibition. That's why the word creates also a kind of solidarity. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Jeffrey Nunberg. His book is called Ascent of the A-Word. It's available now in paperback. We spoke last year. One of the interesting things to me about uh, the rise of this word is the timing, which you write about very eloquently in the book, which is that it is created during World War II, but it really gets going in the late 1960s and early 1970s, and it's parallel to uh, it's parallel to a couple of big cultural movements. But one of them is that I think the the vulgarity of the A word is tied in with the vulgarity of other longshoremen's parlance, to use a word, to use a phrase that is often used. And frankly, I am not sure I know what a longshoreman is. (laughs) That is where I know what longshoreman's parlance is. I know it has something to do with docks, but that's about it. So it's in, you know, 1970, people are using, young people are using vulgar language in the same way that they were growing their hair long or not wearing neckties 
Um, it both rejects the authority of those in authority, the people who say you shouldn't use vulgar language, and identifies them, whether or not they are of the proletariat, with the proletariat in a way that is important for their value systems. Yeah, no, I think it's very well put. Uh, the 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 word is used in the 60s. Of, I, when I was an undergraduate in the 60s, people used the word. I thought it was kind of cool to use the word, which, which indicates that it, it wasn't quite there yet. Uh, the 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 movement left uses it a lot, and and swearing in general has that political subversive uh, meaning. If you think of the scene in Woodstock, uh, where Country Joe McDonald of Country Joe and the Fish uh, is singing, and he begins, he's singing that song, uh, "Feel Like I'm Fixing to Die Rag," you know, one two three, what are we fighting for? Who gives scares? I don't give a damn. Next step is Vietnam, and he starts off uh, with a call and response. The mere mention of that word, uh, what became a political act in, in 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 that context. You didn't have to say that word of anybody. Didn't need an object. Just the verb alone would do it. By the seventies, the lifestyle and behavior and values that had been subversive and challenging to the established order in the sixties are domesticated and given a kind of conventional. Uh, non-conventional meaning, so to speak. So the long hair that was really troubling on the hippies, if you, you read those Wall Street Journal editorials that are unslovenly long hair, is now just a feature of everybody in the high school yearbook, long hair on men. Jeans. Uh, everybody's wearing jeans to the point where by the, by the mid-'70s people are wearing, you know, Gloria Vanderbilt is making jeans for, 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 for people. Uh, the informality of address. This is when people start calling their professors Bob, you know. And and uh, the use of this vulgar language becomes a conventional way of indicating that you're not bound by these uptight, formal, bourgeois proprieties, even in, in the midst of them, even if you're working for a big corporation. You know, when you wrote about Country Joe's call and response at Woodstock, what that F-U-C dot 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 made me think of more than anything else is the rebranding of the clothing retailer The French Connection into F-C-U-K in order to get, like, what's left of that charge in the th- probably literally the least subversive context imaginable. Right. No, it, it's interesting to me. I, you know, the, this, for this language to work, when you learn this language when you're a kid, you have to learn two things to learn with these. First of all, you have to know, you have to be told that we don't say those words. One does not say those words. And then you have to hear people saying the words, ideally the same people. You know, the best thing is to hear it from your, to be told we don't say them and then to hear your dad saying it. You know, that, then you really learn the lesson about it. And then you can take that salacious pleasure in the schoolyard of saying it, knowing you're, 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 you're breaking a rule. And we need both. We need the prudes. Uh, we need that town in Massachusetts a while ago that passed a law against public profanity. Everybody's indignant. But you know, it's great to know those people are out there because <laughs> those are the people we have in mind when we use the words. If there were no such people left out there, we couldn't have the pleasure of, of using the words, knowing how indignant it made them. And Dancing's no fun without footloose laws. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, and, and so that, that play between the inhibition and the violation of the inhibition is at, at the core of what these words do for us. I went to college at uh, the University of California in Santa Cruz and grew up in San Francisco. And um, in in my time in perhaps the two most liberal places in the entire world, <laughs> like probably even even more than like Maoist Beijing, 
Um, I saw a lot of the kind of political discourse that you describe in this book, and it strikes me that there are slightly different tones to the a-holism of uh, of a conservative and the a-holism of a liberal when the, those two a-holisms are clashing. That snobs versus slobs tone has been a really important part of uh, why conservatives have and have in some cases announced that they don't need to care about anything that liberals have to say because they're all effete, ivory tower, blah 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 blah, and so on and so forth. And but the but on the left, there's something there's something there's like a there's a slightly different but no less virulent version of a holism. Yeah, no, and in 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 some ways they almost they almost come together. Uh, the for the right, the a-holes are these pretentious, effete, self-important, out-of-touch, West Side Hollywood academic media liberals uh, right. who, who, as you say, don't have to be paid anywhere. They're contemptible. You don't have to pay any, any, any respect to them. You can say ridiculous things. Uh, in fact, the point of the game often is just to take pleasure at the thought of the indignation that you're engendering in those people. When Ann Coulter says... The nine eleven widows were enjoying their husbands' deaths. I mean, she doesn't care about those women. It's not. It's not as if she, she cares one way or the other. But she she knows how indignant they're going to be. Hillary Clinton says heartless. You know, it's exactly the reaction she's looking for. And the people listening to her take pleasure in the thought of how outrageous she's being and how you can get away with being outrageous. There is a pleasure in this. I mean, as that's the, that's you're describing what Rush Limbaugh has done to, has made him the most popular radio personality in the world for the last or in the United States for the last 20 years that he is constantly engaged in a self-aware basically act of bear baiting um you know that that he does not care about the literal meaning of what he's saying because the Abstract, the abstracted or, you know, you could say satirical meaning in some cases is just to upset people, is just to demonstrate, look at these stupid people and what they get upset about. And, and, and to take pleasure in that as, as, as I mean, the principle that we learn from Dirty Harry is that we can take an enormous pleasure in watching somebody do really terrible things to people who have it coming. And, and that's what Dirty Harry does. It's what Woody Allen does in his way or John Belushi does in his way. It's what Rush Limbaugh or Ann Coulter does. Now, you're talking about the left. Yeah, it's there on the left as well. I, I certainly don't think that the distribution of people who merit this label respects political boundaries, though the right tends to be better organized about it. So I, I want to ask you about the male-female uh, part of this. A-hole uh, and the A-word in general is um, overwhelmingly attached to men rather than women. So maybe you could tell me why you think that is, what are the factors that lead into that, and whether there are other words that we use for women, whether they mean the same thing. Yeah, I think there are two reasons. One of them's legitimate and the other's not. Um, the first is that why do we uh, use the A word more of men than women? Because more men deserve it. Right? <laughs> <laughs> because why? Because it tends to be used to people who have higher status. And in this world, it's still the case that a, a disproportionate number of the people who are bosses and have authority and so on are men. That makes sense. Uh, it, it's also the case that men tend to be the ones who confuse their status with their sense of self. 
Oh, they are the ones who go around saying, do you know who I am? And, of course, people who say, do you know who I am? Almost never know themselves. But but they imagine as – take the boss in the office in both the American and British versions who who's a perfect example of this. And, again, a perfect example because he's really not maligned. There's nothing nasty about him or mean-spirited. He's just clueless and obtuse about his own his own role. Uh, he, he's an example of that, somebody who, who thinks that his status as the boss entitles him to meddle in the lives of his employees or demand things of him that he really doesn't have a right to demand and so on. On the other hand, it's often the case that when a, a man does something that would merit that label, uh, yelling at the gate agent for not giving him an upgrade, when we see a woman do, doing the same thing, we don't use the same label. We call her a bitch. As if suddenly this didn't have to do with a swollen sense of entitlement. Which, which is usually what it is, but rather with some primordial feminine malevolence that's, you know, inborn and so on. It becomes a sex-linked thing. Well, it's not a sex-linked thing. Uh, w- women are capable of the same swollen sense of entitlement as men. And if it's, yeah, it's not like uh, the, the other, some of the other names based on the, the, the male member, which where, where, the, where the, this restriction to men is, is understandable. So I think we should use the A word for women more than we do. I, look, if... if uh, <laughs> that's going to be our poll quote. <laughs> if... if <laughs> If Eddie Fisher merits the A-word label for ditching Debbie Reynolds for Elizabeth Taylor, why does she not get the label when she ditches Fisher for Richard Burton? Uh, What's what's the difference? I think the fact that we go to the B-word, where we'd use the A-word for men, is indicative of of a a kind of residual sexism. Uh, That, again, these words can make known in a way that other words can't, because we'll We'll very quickly revise our use of gal or girls or something like that, knowing that that's not that's not the way we do it now, where these other words go more deeply to our actual feelings. Well, as Bono once said, uh, Jeffrey, having you on the show was really awesome. (laughs) Um, Jeffrey Nunberg's uh, great, uh, trenchant, uh, fascinating book is called Ascent of the A-Word, A-Holism. The first 60 years, he spells it out. I, I, I can only have so many beeps in one radio show. Uh, Jeffrey, thank, thanks for coming back on uh, Bullseye. Thanks. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. Right now, the late night talk show's in a bit of a golden age. There's Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert on Comedy Central, of course. Jimmy Fallon has done a brilliant job of capitalizing on his particular brand of charm, especially considering the boundaries of network television. Craig Ferguson actually talks to people like human beings, which is kind of amazing. Conan's taken his new cable gig as an opportunity to be, you know, more Conan-y than ever, which is great. And his show has the distinction of being the only late-night show that actually seems to consider whether the guests are, you know, funny, entertaining. But here's the truth. All of the people that I mentioned are brilliantly talented, and there's others besides. But there's only one real genius in late-night, and his name is David Letterman. From New York, the greatest city in the world, it's The Late Show with David Letterman. All those folks are fun. 
David Letterman is a transformative figure. He's the one who still does something once in a while that's amazing. Not just funny or clever or sharp, but genuinely marvelous. Look, Dave's in his mid-60s. He usually seems pretty disinterested in the monologue. He's often borderline resentful of the top ten list. When a guest gets boring, he gets a little bored. But the fact is that Letterman's so good, he's still better than most when he's running at 80%. He's like a veteran pitcher. He hits the corners, he changes speeds, he holds a little something back. But when there's two strikes, he will blow you away. Because he's the best in the business, and that's what he does. Dave doesn't often leave the studio these days. Once in a while, they'll send a camera out and have him direct the action on the street. I particularly loved a segment called How Many Spider-Mans Fit in a Jamba Juice, which you should definitely watch on the internet. He'll still do something silly, even if it confuses the audience. Lately, he's been having a couple of faux morning anchors do plugs for the Late Show Weekend. Sometimes a weird guy wanders onto the set to say something weird. Most often, though, Letterman's genius shows in the little moments talking from the desk about a trip he took with his son, or interacting with an old friend like Regis Philbin, or with a genuine madman like Jungle Jack Hanna, or maybe a world champion grocery bagger or a child bird caller. It's in those little moments that he shows you something that you can't quite explain, something so good that it leaves you awestruck. Look, all these folks in Late Night are talented. Some of them are extremely talented. And probably some of their shows are cooler or hotter or more consistently amusing or incisive or whatever. But when they get home at 11 or 11.30, I think they watch Dave. Because Dave is the genius. That's my outshot. How you doing? Thank you. Seriously, how many of you just came here to cool off, huh? That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show's produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Thomas Matasek. Interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by The Go Team, thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast. Podcast, by the way, often features longer versions of each week's interviews. We just had a fantastic time at MaxFunCon this weekend. Thanks so much to everybody who joined us. We hope we'll see you there next year. Be sure to go to BoatParty.biz if you'd like to join us for our next big event, the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival. It's happening in September. That's BoatParty.biz. Yes, really, BoatParty.biz. We have not yet heard from Sugar Ray lead singer Mark McGrath, but I want to take this opportunity to repeat my offer. We feel bad that your Mark McGrath and Friends cruise got canceled, and so if you want to come on our cruise, the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, you can on me. Just send me an email. My email address is jesse at maximumfun.org. And if you're not Mark McGrath, but you know Mark McGrath, let him know. I think he's going to want to know about this. It's going to be a lot of fun. jesse at maximumfun.org, Mark. Let's do this. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.